It's good to be here this morning. Y'all turn to Matthew 3. That'll be our text for the morning. Let's pray. Lord, I'm very aware that if we lose sight of your greatness this morning, we could think very highly of ourselves. I pray that what you're encountering this morning is a people who are truly humbling themselves before the Lord. I pray that as we gather, we are a people who understand we desperately need Jesus. Lord, it's very easy um, in the craziness of schedules and the, the volume of activity. Um, it is sadly very easy for us to lose sight of how wonderful you are, how mighty you are. And so my prayer this morning is that we wouldn't lose sight of that, but that you would make that very clear to us that you are great, that you're greatly to be praised, that your greatness is unsearchable, that there's no one like you, that you are unlike all others, that we are created and you are creator. I pray that you would keep that clear in our focus this morning so that we don't get things out of order and so that we don't end up all over the map. Lord, I also pray uh, for Ridgecrest this morning. Uh, I know they're in the process of finding a, a new pastor, trying to get the right man and his, his family in there. And I, I honestly have no idea where they're at in the process. I just know it's been uh, a long process. And so uh, my prayer is for that, that you would allow them, bless them uh, with a pastor who, uh, who is eager to expose the word and to shepherd the flock as you ordain him in Scripture. Lord, this morning as we talk about repentance, I pray against uh, vagueness and I pray against generality. I pray that we would not be, uh, I pray for honesty, really. I pray that as we talk about repentance and what it is and what it isn't, I pray that specific sins would be on our minds. I pray that each of us would, would be convicted in some manner or another because none of us are sitting here sinless. So, Lord, what, I know that what needs to happen here can't just happen because someone says something. It has to be a work of the Spirit. It has to be your moving uh, to convict us accordingly that we might repent. We love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for having a reason to sing. We thank you for having a reason to go to the Word and to, to know that it is breathed out by you and profitable for our time here this morning and for all other time. You are greater than we can comprehend, and we humble ourselves before you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 3, verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with the unquenchable fire. Today we're going to be focusing on repentance, particularly bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. As I looked at our bulletin cover this morning, I realized how I still have in my mind some stereotypes in regards to church people and repentance, their view and our view of what it is. I look at this and I think, that looks pretty serious. The word repentance appears to be screaming at me, and the backdrop of fire and hammer are pretty hardcore. Is this offensive? Is it biblical? A very broad roadmap for the morning and some questions uh, we will be engaging are as follows. Th- these are the kinds of things we're going to be engaging this morning as we consider repentance, what it is, what it is not, and what John's message was and what it was not. What does God really expect of us when he calls us to repentance? What is he expecting? Is repentance just a list of things I'm not supposed to do, or is there some positive forward trajectory? If ultimately my hope is in Christ's righteousness being counted as mine, why all of the concern to be righteous and to be holy and to repent? As professing Christians, there there are probably some here who aren't professing Christians, and if you're not, I would encourage you to listen closely. The Word has some things to tell us this morning about our sin and about Jesus. But for those who are professing Christians, I would ask, when you hear from the Word and from the pastor that you need to repent, does it cause in you a sobriety to assess your life? Does it cause in you a sobriety to assess your life and to make sure that sin is not going unrepented of? Or... Is it sort of a buzzkill? Does it shed welcome light in dark corners? Or is the call to repentance more like an unwelcome guest? Are you eager to put sin to death? Look at your previous week. Have you been eager to put sin to death? Or do you work harder to hide it and to cover it up? Do you expect that you can overcome your sin? Or does repentance sound to you like a hopeless endeavor? Ultimately, what was the aim of John the Baptist's ministry? I want to know, what was his ministry? Why did God give him this message to preach, and how was it preparing the way for Christ? So look at verses 1 through 3 again. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because Jesus is near. The timeline in, in this section of Scripture is that Um, Jesus is actually soon going to come to John the Baptist and be baptized. He will be led into the wilderness to be tempted, and thus will begin his earthly ministry. So that's our timeline. So the kingdom is at hand because the king is near. There are two ways to look at this. So he says repent because the kingdom is at hand. Repent. So there's two ways to look at this, namely the right way and the wrong way. I don't want us to, to get caught up on the wrong way, so I want to expose what the wrong way is. When I was little, there were those times where my mother would say, you boys, I've got three brothers, and you can imagine with four boys in the house, we could make a serious, serious mess, uh, hourly, minute by minute. And so when I was little, my mother would say that we would have to have our rooms and our toys and our messes cleaned up before my father got home. You could say that mom's message was, you better get things cleaned up before dad gets home, or you will be punished. It was mom's message. I want you to know that that's not John's message. That's not what's being said here when he says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. He's not saying, repent, get your life cleaned up so that you're ready to see Jesus. Because if your life isn't neat and tidy and acceptable, then he may not accept you. Daddy's going to be home soon. Better get your stuff cleaned up. That's not John the Baptist's message as he is preaching here in the desert. To understand rightly what John is saying, we need a good definition for repentance. Many of us think repentance and we think um, that's when you stop sinning, which is true, but that's not complete. We need a complete definition. Repentance is a turning from sin. If you were taking notes, this kind of stuff you'd write down. Repentance is a turning from sin. But it's also a turning toward God. 
It's not just turning away from something. It is a Godward trajectory, and, and we have to see that, or we will just try to be good little boys and girls who don't do the bad things. So repentance is a turning from sin and toward God. And it is a change in actions, but it's also a change in thinking. To use Paul's language, you could say that it is a transformation by the renewal of your mind that results in a turning to God away from your sin. The kingdom of, he- of God and this eternal reality are breaking into the temporal landscape as John is preaching, literally. As John is saying, repent, the kingdom is at hand. Literally, Jesus is, is, is geographically closer than he has ever been before to coming on the scene with his earthly ministry. And so this, these eternal realities are breaking into this temporal landscape. The Messiah is near. The eternal is informing the temporal The eternal is informing the temporal in a way previously unknown. Heaven is not just some future reality. This is something that God's people have to see. If you see eternity as something that is not upon us now, but as some far-off thing, then you may also see the way that you're supposed to live as some far-off thing. If you don't see eternity as something that's upon us, you may have the propensity to deal lightly with sin. You may find yourself sinning and thinking thoughts like, well, maybe I'll get it straight someday. Man, here I go again. For now, this is just who I am, and thankfully, eternity isn't here yet. What I want you to know this morning is that the world, this world is temporary, but you who sit here were created as eternal beings. The voice in the wilderness, John the Baptist's voice in the wilderness is urging us to remove obstacles from our life that will hinder our receiving of the kingdom of God, and he's urging us to remove obstacles from our life that will hinder our our activity and our usefulness in the kingdom of God. John is ultimately preparing a people in the wilderness who are not all over the map. John's saying, I want to help y'all here. I don't want y'all to be just all over the map all the time, like life is just only crazy, and there's no reason and there's no getting things straight in any way, shape, form, or fashion. He's, he's wanting to help people not be all over the map. Paths are being made straight in the sense that it needs to be made clear that you're a kingdom people. Your king is near. His kingdom is at hand. And spotty faithfulness and inattentiveness to your actions and inattentiveness to the thinking that leads to those actions is not conducive to God's call to repent. Don't just be reactive in your living. Don't just go with the flow and hope for the best. Rather, repent. Don't dabble in sin. Don't perpetuate a cycle of unfaithfulness. Don't allow it in your life. And as you look at the rest of the people out here in the wilderness with you, help them to do the same. That's what's being said here by John. Look at verse 4. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Sometimes we read that and we think, no one has ever been so crazy, a bug-eating fur-wearing weirdo. This was actually pretty common. Um, If you were a, to to put it in terms we would understand, sort of a third world, um, very poor desert dweller, that this was normal. So John wasn't like the shock jock of preachers. It wasn't like, I'm going to eat some bugs and tell you about Jesus. That wasn't what it is. It was just, it was very common. And so he wore uh, garments of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, that's a very common guy. Look what happens with this common guy. Then Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and all Judea, and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's always miraculous and divine to me when this happens. It is not normal for a man to preach a message about turning from what your flesh screams for, and for hearers to not only turn, but to go tell their friends. Crowds are gathering to hear from a poor, bug-eating desert dweller. This is not normal. This is divine. This is a movement of the Holy Spirit, and it is a work of God. It is such grace and mercy, and I want us to see it. Because it's the same if someone stands in this pulpit and says, you need to repent, and, and you actually do. It's not like, oh, that's the norm. We're pretty good people, and we repent. We'll talk about what it means to be fair sacral in a minute. This is grace and this is mercy. 
There is nothing in your flesh that would cause you to return and hear again a message that goes against self. It's a work of God by the Holy Spirit. So here what we have is that people are responding with the call to repent with two things in particular. They're responding with baptism and confession of sins. Now, there's much to be said about baptism, but today we were going, we're going to keep it brief. I'm aware of the 12 o'clock kickoff. Baptism, while is not only symbolic, the ESV has a note that going under the water symbolized both the cleansing away of sin and a passing safely through the waters of judgment and death. So as people are being baptized, what I want you to see is they're considering their sin. They're considering how they need to be cleansed. They're considering God's judgment. They're considering how the wages of sin is death. And and as they're passing through the waters, they're seeing that their relationship with God is being changed in Jesus. So it's not just, let's all go jump in the water and get out. This is a thoughtful thing. We also know that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So in, in some sense, it does go beyond just being a symbolic thing. We have lots of messages online, and more importantly, our pastors, our deacons, our small group shepherds are all available to talk more about baptism with you if you have questions about it. It's an important thing, and we would love to engage you in that if you so desire. At this point, there's something about repentance that we very much need to see. Repentance is something that is granted. Now, you might think, oh, I thought I was supposed to do that. What we have to see is repentance is something that is granted. Turn to Acts 11. 11 verse 15. Now in Acts 11, Peter is giving a report to the church about the kinds of things that are going on as the word is being preached and as people are hearing about Jesus. And the church is filled with joy about what Peter is is recounting, essentially. And in Acts 11, verse 15, we learn something about repentance and how it works. Verse 15 says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. He's actually recalling what was going on with John the Baptist in the wilderness. And he says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. When they heard what Peter had to say, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What these Jews are saying is they're listening to Peter recounting what's happening when the gospel is preached. These Jews are saying, in the same way that God granted us repentance that we see now clearly and more more clearly in Christ, we glorify God that he's granting Gentiles repentance as well. It brings them joy. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. This is continuing to explain. I'm talking about ministry, but when I say ministry, I don't want you to think about something that paid professionals do. I'm talking about the work of ministry that is done by saints who are equipped for such a work, according to the Word. And so we're, all, we're talking about ministry. This is, Peter's ministry is the same as the ministry you're called to, and it's just, the same call is, is on your life. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26 say this, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Now, is there anything more difficult to patiently endure than evil? Like, it's easier to patiently endure someone who's just foolish and, and dumb. Like, evil is difficult. And the call is to patiently endure evil. Look what it results in. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What I want you to see is you don't just come to your senses and repent, and then God says, good job. God grants repentance that you might come to your senses and live a life for his glory as he draws you in in an irresistible way. 
Again, as we move in faith and teach others and set examples and pursue righteousness, we know that an effect may be that God may grant repentance to others as it has been granted to us. But if we don't see repentance as something granted, we will shove it down your throat and repent, 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 and we would never pray for you. But because we see it as granted to us, we see it as hopefully being granted to you, and so we would pray for you, and we would patiently endure any evil you would bring as we present the word. The point is that repentance itself is something granted by God. And what, what happens when God grants repentance is it leads to greater realities. Repentance is not something that we do with an aim to earning God's favor. It is in keeping with God's favor. It's the same with confession of sins. So to put it all, put a bow on it, the one who is repenting and confessing sins is one who is keeping in step with God's favor. You don't earn God's favor. You confess the sin, as James says, so that there can be healing. I would ask, do you believe that? Everyone in here has struggled with sin today. Do you believe that in confessing your sins that there is healing? Much like you would not want a disease or a sickness to go undiagnosed, so it is with sin. Confess it as sin. Confess it as unbelief. Confess it as unfaithfulness. And go to God for help with your belief. Go to God to help with your unbelief and for healing. You do this. You do this. You repent as one who has been brought into the kingdom, not as one who is trying to work their way into the kingdom. You do this as one who's brought behind the wall, who's not banging on the door trying to get their way, get in by their own way. This is worshipful response and not hopeless pleading. God heals when we confess our sins. Turn back to Matthew 3. If you have an accountability partner and you gather with them to confess your sins, just please don't ever say, uh, nope, no, I'm good this week. I'm, I, I don't got anything. I don't got anything to confess. We're good. And if someone does say that to you, don't give a pat on the shoulder and say, oh, that's fantastic. Let's try to do that again this week. <laughs> we're sinners. So I want you to see that like, when, when we're confessing our sin, it's not that, oh, I confess that I got it behind me. That's done. It's it's, there's still a battle with sin. We're going to talk about that more, but just in thinking about that, hold each other accountable biblically. So in Matthew 3, at this point, good things are happening. This is good. Like as a pastor, I'm thinking, ooh, I like this. Um, uh, the word is being preached. Uh, people are being baptized. And sin is being confessed. What more could I ask for here? But what happens is a new group of people enters and the environment changes a bit as that group of people enters. Look at verses 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, and I want you to know I've worked on this inflection, because I don't think he was like, you brood of vipers, who warned you? I think that there was a, probably a certain tone in his voice that made very clear what he knew about them by the work of the Spirit. He didn't hang out with these guys, but the Holy Spirit has clearly shown him something about what they are doing and how they are living, and I'm sure that word has traveled. So he looks at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he says, you brood of vipers, exclamation point, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Just real briefly, why would you cut down a tree? Oh, yeah, it's, uh, sorry, I went to my Wednesday night thing where I was actually expecting you to answer. <laughs> sorry. It's Sunday. This is not a dialogue. Um, we had a tree in our backyard growing up. It was very dead, and it was very dead for many years. And for many years, we talked about, man, we've got to get rid of that tree. It was over the swing set. Branches would fall into the swing set, and, and none of us were crushed, thankfully. But, I mean, it was dangerous. And then there were bugs, and it would, have, it would have termites and ants, and we couldn't even climb in the tree. And for years and years, we talked about cutting down the tree because the tree was good for nothing. And finally, when we did cut it down, it was like the whole backyard feels so much better now that that horrible, non-bearing tree is gone. 
So that's why you would cut down a tree. It has no usefulness. Now, let me ask. He he has addressed the Pharisees and the Sadducees in a very direct way. He called them a brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Would you be offended by John's words here? If you were one of those confessing your sin and being baptized, and you heard John over here, hey, brood of vipers, who warned you? Would you be like, oh, John, oh, dear. You've lost your mind. John's gone crazy. He, he, he looked crazy. Now he is crazy. Does he seem rude? Does he seem off the mark? Or is it possible that he has hit the mark directly? We need to understand why the Pharisees and Sadducees were out of place. I'm going to talk here about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this is good. This is, if there's a challenging part in the sermon, this, this is a part where we've got to dig in and we've got to let our minds engage. I want to see what these people looked like when they walked up. I want to know why John was so frustrated immediately. A quick study of Pharisees and Sadducees shows that the Pharisees had considerable influence over the local scribes. The scribes were the guys who kept the word and they did a lot of the teaching. And in fact, when Jesus, later after this, when Jesus began to preach with authority, it was the scribes who were in cahoots with the Pharisees. The scribes went to the Pharisees and told them, who then went to attribute Jesus' power to Beelzebul. That's the devil. That's who the Pharisees are. I was reading that the Dead Sea Scrolls accused the Pharisees of being seekers of smooth things. They wrote a book. That's probably what it would be called. That is, they were passing on easy interpretations to the people. They were like, this is, this is hard, but we don't want you to like freak out when you read it. So we're going to find the things that we think we can do well, and we're going to do that. That's what they were doing, passing on easy interpretations to the people. They required less, and they were generally less challenging to the people. And over time, people liked that. Ooh, I like going there and not being too challenged. Many were, however, see this, they were scrupulous to maintain a righteous status before God. Now, how does that work? That means they really paid attention to, to the details they saw as important to be righteous before God. What that means is that they said, I see this as a means to be righteous before God, and if I'm supposed to do this, I'm going to do this 350%. Now, I might ignore these other 10 things, but this right here, I'm going to be very scrupulous. I'm going to pay attention to those details because I want to be righteous before God. It's like Paul. Remember, Paul claimed that as a Pharisee, he was blameless to the law of Moses. Paul's not saying I never transgressed the law, no, not once. Paul's saying, from a pharisaical standpoint, I was awesome. That's what he's saying. We know that all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? We know that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. The Pharisees had trouble seeing this. They would choose parts of the law that they felt they could accomplish, and they would excel in those things. What that means is they tithed even their garden herbs. It'd be like you writing a check and then going out to the garden and picking a a tenth at least of everything and putting it in and very nobly bringing it and setting it in the little basket. Tithed even their garden herbs. They fasted twice as much. I can fast. I'll fast twice as much. But according to Jesus, they neglected the weightier matters of the law, namely justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They had these actions that they felt a little more comfortable with, and they would try to excel in those, but they would neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The Pharisees believed that the resurrection of the dead was a reward for living a righteous life. Do you believe that? That the resurrection from the dead is your reward for living a righteous life? Is it a reward or is it a gift that you cannot earn? There's a huge difference. In Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees who would strain out a gnat, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Scribes and the Pharisees are not your mark. If If your righteousness does not excel theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees needed to repent. The Pharisees needed to follow Jesus. Instead, they set their own standards, they tweaked the Bible to their own benefit, and they dismissed Jesus as, well, demonic. The Sadducees. Now, he addressed them together, but there is a difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. While the Pharisees were really in with the common people, the Sadducees were very much above the common people. They were uh, primarily of a wealthy priestly families in Jerusalem. The Sadducees were unfriendly. 
They were even unfriendly to each other, and they were unpopular. When Jesus disrupted their financial interests in the temple, it was the Sadducees who had him arrested and condemned. See, the Sadducees rejected the extra-biblical traditions of the Pharisees because over time the Pharisees would form these new things. And we'll do this, and we'll do this, and we'll do this. And if we do this and we do it really well, then God's going to be pleased with us. The Sadducees rejected the extra-biblical things of the Pharisees, and they embraced human responsibility, which they sought to be emphasized in the law of Moses. Here's what I want us to see. That's the brief background. Both groups saw themselves as elite, and both groups saw themselves as entitled. John doesn't just call them vipers. He calls them a brood of vipers. Do you realize what that's saying? That's like saying you and your mama and your granddaddy, you're all vipers. You together are like a family of snakes with your cunning movements and your venomous strikes. John asked him who warned them of God's coming wrath because they were well known for seeing themselves as fairly capable to be all that God requires. So when he says, who warned you of God's wrath? He's saying, you had not been worried about God's wrath. Why are you out here? Neither group were students of their own stench. Neither the Pharisees or the Sadducees really saw their depravity. As a result, neither rightly feared the wrath of God. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is towards unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses the truth. So if you work backwards, the Pharisees and Sadducees would say, I'm not suppressing the truth. I'm living in a very righteous manner, and so why must I fear God's wrath? They'd been a part of the joke, but they're not getting the punchline. That's what's happening here, and John's addressing it. So today it's not hard to imagine what this would look like if we really try. It's a bunch of people whose eyes are not fixed on Jesus, but on what we do. They're living as though they can and will earn something from God. Today, these people, for them, righteousness is found in traditions. Some biblical, some extra biblical. Some traditions are great. I'm not anti-tradition. Some traditions are wonderful. I kind of wish Crosspoint had more traditions. I wish there were more of us sitting here who had grandparents that were in the faith and we had these things that we passed down that were biblical. Some traditions stink. We need to can them quickly. So I have to ask the question this morning. Are we ever guilty of operating like a Sadducee? Please be sober as you consider these questions. Are we ever guilty of operating like a Sadducee? Are we guilty of being pharisaical in regards to righteousness? I want you to think soberly. What I was wanting to do and what I'm going to do is, hopefully, um, could be a train wreck, but we'll all be together. Um, if Crosspoint, given the dynamics of Crosspoint and the structure of Crosspoint and the things that we do at Crosspoint and the things we're a part of and sort of the lingo that's normal here, I was trying to think of what it would be like if we became pharisaical and sadduceical, sadduceish, sadduceish. It's a mess. If we became pharisaical and like the Sadducees, I'm wondering what would that look like here given our dynamics that are already in place? And so here's a fake person. And this is what that fake person might say if they were members of Crosspoint, yet they began to be very pharisaical and acting like Sadducees. I'm a member at Crosspoint Fellowship. I believe that I am chosen, so I need not worry with my sin. That's how it would play out here. My granddaddy was a believer. My daddy was a believer, so I'm a believer. Because Jesus took care of my sin, I need not trouble myself with confession and repentance and righteousness. Since Jesus' righteousness is counted as mine, I wouldn't necessarily say that out loud, but in my heart, that that is how I feel. And if you asked me about my standing before God, I would be at least a little bit offended. And I would respond by letting you know, I am in a small group. I do serve in the children's ministry. I give 13% of my income to the church. I would have a tendency, in fact, to speak very highly about my church and the way that we operate, and I would urge you to follow in our traditions. But you might not hear me talking like that about God. In some instances, 
I would encourage you to hold loosely to the Scriptures. But in other instances, I would encourage you to be much more strict. But when it's all said and done, there must be some way for us to earn God's favor while keeping others from impeding upon our way of life. This is who we are. Some may consider me unfriendly, but I really don't worry myself with that. I'm unpopular because I'm chosen. It likely has little to do with how I actually act. To imply that I need to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance is to imply that God isn't pleased with me. In general, I pay close attention to how I act, and, and, and I think that God will accept me for being a righteous person. If Crosspoint started acting and operating in a pharisaical and like Sadducees, that's what it would look like. What I'm getting at is I want us to see that we could reduce our standard. God has set our standard for us. It's no less than perfection. That's why we are dependent upon Christ. But what I want us to see is that if we begin to operate in such a manner, we could reduce our standard to a list of be here on Sunday, be here on Wednesday, give consistently, and be in a small group. How's your walk? Well, I do those four things. Obviously, this is not the ideal member of Crosspoint or any other church for that matter. I didn't put that together by thinking about the way you act. That would not be ideal for any church. The opposite of this, the opposite of this ridiculous movement that is very pharisaical and like the Sadducees is to do what it says in verse 8 in Matthew 3. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 9, John is saying your genealogy doesn't matter. If you think it does, you presume too much and you've lost sight of the greatness of God and you're thinking too highly of yourself. So I want us to ask this question, what does it mean to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? John is addressing them with truth. In speaking truth to them, John's hope is that they are convicted. John doesn't look at the Pharisees and Sadducees in a hopeless way. He's just, well, yeah, I'm surprised you're here. I know what your way of thinking is. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's a very sober message from John. And John's hope is that they're convicted. Because when conviction runs its course, it ultimately leads to repentance, which leads to a life of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. I want us to start to see these dots connecting. What I fear is that many of us might treat conviction too lightly. Like just right out of the gate, we might treat conviction too lightly and we never even get to the point about repentance. What I mean is this, we hear something from the Word. We're reminded of what is truly important and we say, wow, that's convicting. Only to get five minutes down the road and forget what we were just convicted about. I often wonder if our schedules even allow time for true conviction. Think about that. Does busyness keep you away from just being really truly convicted when it's necessary? When we are convicted, we need to hit our knees when we're convicted about truth that we hear, and when I say convicted, I'm saying you hear truth and you say, I'm guilty. I'm so guilty of that. If you don't repent, you're moving forward in your guilt. That's what I'm talking about here. So when I hear, when, you, when you're convicted, you're saying, ooh, guilty. But if you don't allow that to run its course, you just move on continuing to be guilty of that thing and you never repent of it. So when we're convicted, we need to hit our knees and we need to spend time in solitude asking God to show us our sin and to help us to turn from it and to help us to turn toward Him. And not only solitude, but we need time with a brother or a sister in Christ. And we need to pray and we need to set up something in the way of accountability to keep me from falling into this sin. Oftentimes, we never get to the point of repentance because we deal so lightly with conviction, and repentance becomes a thing that is just seldom on our radar. We can have Sunday morning and Wednesday night and small groups and the nursery schedule on our radars. We can have the soccer schedule on our radars. We can have the 15,000 things we need to do this week on our radars and not repentance because we've dealt lightly with conviction. Thomas Watson says this. This is a great quote. You should write it down. Though God is more full of mercy than the sun is full of light, yet he will not forgive a sinner while he goes on in his guilt. 
he will by no means clear the guilty. Till the sinner repents, God and he cannot be friends. So you might be thinking, okay, wait, does God grant me repentance or am I responsible to repent? You might be sitting there thinking that. You might be thinking, am I elect and therefore I repent or do I repent to try to become chosen? And how do I bear fruit in keeping with repentance? This thing keeps coming up. Turn to 2 Peter 1. Second Peter 1 paints a good picture for us on what it looks like to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because Second Peter 1 outlines this process of life that is expected. But when we read it, we say, whoa, hold the phone. That's, that's hard. But, but I want us to see this as a clear expectation and talk about the dynamics. Second Peter 1, I would consider this a very important satellite. We're going to start in verse 3. His divine power, 2 Peter 1.3, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do, do you operate with that knowledge? Today, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So right there, you can't say, well, I just don't have the goods. Evidently, you do. Through the knowledge of Him, who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's calling us to his own glory and excellence. That means something. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become, look at this phrase, partakers of the divine nature. So that through them, through these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What does it mean to be partakers of the divine nature? The divine nature that we're speaking of here is this, God's character. Partakers of God's character. Partakers of the divine nature. I want to make it clear. Some religions have taken this way too far, and I don't want us to do that. We are not God. We are not partly God. God does not take part of himself and give it to us so that we ourselves can be godish. That's not what's going on here. But amazingly, and the ESV study Bible has a really clear, clarifying note, amazingly, we share in his nature as we become increasingly like God. Do you see what's being said here? We share in his nature as we become increasingly like God. For some believers, it is unsavory to say, be like God. Like if you asked me, why are you operating in that manner? Well, I'm really trying to be like God today. You might be like, you're not God. Be like, I know. I'm trying to be like God. But that's not right. You're not God. It, it, there's a balance here. You might think that because your thoughts of God are appropriately high, but we have to have that balance with what God himself spoke to us. Be holy as I am holy. That's not a suggestion. That's not God saying, give holiness a shot. Be holy as I am holy. In Hebrews, he says, strive for the holiness without which no one will see God. There's a holiness that you should have in your living by which people look at that and see God. You're supposed to feel the weight of that. God created us in his image. We are image bearers. Sometimes I think that we eagerly anticipate heaven simply as a response to our skepticism. We just think, that's not going to happen. I can't wait till I get to heaven where I don't have to deal with all this. It's skepticism. It's futile thinking. We think futile thoughts like, I'm not holy. I can't be holy. I can't be godly. My life's not going to have godliness. Come on. We all know how I am. God wants to redeem you from that thinking. It's God who tells us that godliness is of great value in every way. Not just in the future, but right now as we are currently partakers of his divine nature. Consider the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit produces fruit. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The Spirit produces the fruit of love, 
Why? Because that's what God's like. The Spirit aims to produce in your life the fruit of joy. Why? Because it reflects the character of God. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Certainly the Holy Spirit would not produce fruit that is contrary to the character of God. Look at verse 5 through 7. For this very reason, look at what God has done. He has done this so that you can become partakers of his divine nature. He has granted you repentance. He has given you the gift of faith. And now, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. See this as supplementing. It's not faith plus virtue. Faith plus knowledge. It's a supplementing of faith itself. Supplement your faith with virtue, Virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. When it says to supplement your faith with virtue, this virtue is the moral excellence and character of God. So supplement your faith with the moral character of God. As you're being faithful, try to, be, try to act and, and, and conduct yourself and your manners and your, and your details in a way that is conducive to the character of God, the moral character of God even. But make sure that your sense of morality comes from God's breathed out word. Ooh, we can trip up here. Make sure that your sense of morality comes from what it says right here. Make sure that it doesn't come from cultural norms. And make sure that your sense of reality doesn't come from personal expectations. Don't be pharisaical when it comes to virtue because it's not virtuous. I'll say it again. Don't be pharisaical when it comes to virtue because that's not virtuous. Look at verse 8 through 11. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing... So have these things, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and make sure that these qualities aren't just something you have, but something that are, they're increasing. They keep you, uh, if these qualities are yours and, keep, and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful like that tree that needed to be cut down in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance is to have these qualities and increase in them. As you set your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of your faith, if you think you can have these qualities and increase in them while taking your eyes off Christ, you are sorely mistaken. There is no hope found anywhere else. That's what keeps you from getting the glory. So you might be thinking, this sounds like God's not okay with me sinning. To which I would say, yes, that's correct. To which you might say, but I'm a sinner. So how does that work? All sin and fall short of the glory of God, but it sounds like what you're saying is God's not okay with me sinning. Uh, where's the give and take here? Is, is it a give and take? Is that how it works? Sin a little, get a little grace. I'm okay. You're okay. Where's the grace? How does this work? I want to be very careful here. I really want to be very careful here. I cannot find one piece of scripture where God looks upon your sin and says, it's okay. I get it. It's hard. You and I both knew this would happen. Rather, what I see God doing that is horrible when we miss it, I see God providing Christ. And I see God pointing us to Christ. And when you need Christ the most, I especially don't see God okay with you dismissing that which he has provided for your propitiation so that wrath is absorbed by Christ and not you. I don't see him taking that lightly. I don't see God okay with you dismissing that which he has provided for your cleansing and for your forgiveness and for your acceptance. God does not look upon his son as a cheap token of his gratitude. What he did with Christ is as real as real gets. It's not a token of his gratitude. 
The giving of his only begotten son is the means in which he has shown us love and provided a way to himself. So I want to be careful when we talk about sinners being called to repentance because immediately we go to Jesus. Turn to 1 John. Just to the right, just a little. First uh, John, we need to be sober-minded and biblically informed in regards to our sin when we hear God calling us to repent and turn from that sin and toward him. First John 1, verse 8 through 10, and then we'll read on into 2 to make sure we have the right context. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So you might be thinking, well, okay, well, has, has a balance. I thought I was, shouldn't those people be repenting of that sin? Yes. But if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, do you believe this? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, look where he goes. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see where he goes? He doesn't say, if anyone does sin, I'm writing this to you so that if you sin, I'm writing this to you so you don't sin, but, but if you do, um, that's cool. I mean, you know, we're all sinners. That's not what he says. He goes to Jesus. If you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Turn to Romans 7. Back to the left. I'm going to read verses 15 through 25. And as I read verses 15 through 25, I want you all to pay specific attention to a dynamic that God is drawing out in the text. The dynamic is desire versus ability. The dynamic is desire versus ability. Romans 7, verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. Have you ever been there? Why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep thinking that? I'm brokenhearted over why that keeps coming up. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now... It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, that's not an excuse. That's just making sure you're real in touch with reality. You get pulled over and you get a ticket. You, Officer, it is no longer I who speed. It is the sin that is within me. That's not, that's, not, that's not what this verse is getting at. This verse is getting at the fact that you have sin in you, and it's a problem. And, and there's, there's a remedy, but there's only one remedy. So be sober in your regards to your thinking about your sin. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We're new creations in Christ. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it but the sin that dwells within me. This is such a sober recounting of struggle with sin that Paul is giving us. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You ever been there? Man, I want to do the right thing. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If that stopped there, this would be the saddest verse in your Bible. Wretched man that I am, where is hope found? But it doesn't. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord, for helping me in a, in a situation that would otherwise be totally hopeless. 
It's appropriate to mourn over sin in the same same manner. Some of us need to get to that point. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If you're pharisaical, you're saying, ah, I'm all right. It's not so bad. If you're a Sadducee, you're looking down saying, they're way worse. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Yet even in, in these two sets of verses, God never okays our sin. He never sweeps it under the rug, or else he would not be just. He would be playing favorites. He would be hard to depend on if he did that. God never tries to show us how understanding he is by passing over it. He doesn't try to be our buddy. I get it. It's cool. I'm God. I keep that record. I'll, I'll throw that one out. No. We're pointed to Christ. We're provided for in Christ. So today, you are urged, we are urged, I am urged, everyone here is urged toward repentance. Repent. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Turn from your sin and toward God. Allow the imperishable seed to take deep root in your lives. Do not deal lightly with conviction. Think about your sin specifically, not generally. Some of you may need to not go to lunch immediately after this because you need to let conviction run its course. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's so frustrating to me. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. When you are overcome and overtaken with temptation, do, do you ever think, this is so common to everybody. Everyone has the same. You think, oh, this is horrible. This is, this is so unique, and what do I do? He's saying, no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. You're feeling the, the propensity and the urge to sin right now. That's very common. But you need to know this. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability? But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And you will not find that way of escape if you turn away from Christ. You're still in prison. You're still guilty. Godliness is not unattainable. Hear that today. You're not God. You're never going to be God. But godliness is not unattainable. Godliness is of great value in every way. Repentance is not an unrealistic expectation. If God had not provided Jesus, repentance would be sort of like, really, you expect me to do that? But if God had not provided Christ, we would be utterly hopeless. Our only hope is in Christ. Don't leave here saying, my hope is in repentance. Now, repentance is something granted for those who are in Christ. Repentance is not an unrealistic expectation. You need to know you're about to walk through those doors, and guess what? Sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you. But according to the Word, you must rule over it. Don't try to rule over it. Don't give it a go. You must rule over it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. At the end of Matthew 3, there in our section that we were in, in verse 12, there's a winnowing fork. You see Jesus with this winnowing fork where he is separating two things. And what I want you to know is that the winnowing fork is not separating sinners and non-sinners. The winnowing fork isn't Jesus saying, okay, all you sinners over here and all you clean-nosed non-sinners over here. The winnowing fork is used for separating repenting sinners from unrepentant sinners. The winnowing fork is used to separate those who are bearing fruit in keeping with repentance and those who are not repentant. <coughs> to better inform your bulletin cover, Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? It's hard to think of two things less subtle than fire and a hammer. God's intention is not to deal lightly with you. The word is like fire and a hammer. Those are not subtle things. When we gather to hear this word preached, it is the engine that God uses to effect repentance. When you study the word and meditate on it and pray through it, God's aim is for you to turn from your sin and toward him. And when you trip up and fail and sin, 
Don't dismiss it and slough it off and explain it away. Go to Christ. Consider the cross. God is faithful. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Let's pray. Lord, when I think of a sermon on repentance, in my mind I see this sort of hellfire and brimstone thing coming at us. And to be honest, I understand that more this morning than I ever have before. It is so important that we not miss what God's calling us to. And it is so important that we not take our eyes off of Jesus. Repentance is something that happens for those who are in Christ. And Lord, the only reason that we are in Christ is because of a work outside of ourselves that you have done in your might, in your splendor, in your strength. If we think we can achieve it on our own and it's not up to your might and your strength, then we are no different than the Pharisees and Sadducees who looked back at Abraham and attributed their being accepted to being offspring of Abraham. Lord, we know that it is the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh, who inherit the kingdom. Lord, your word tells us that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We want to be pleasing to you. Our entire created purpose is to glorify you. We were put on this earth. We were given borrowed breath to bring you glory, to live in a way that shows the character of our God. Lord, I pray that we would be able to go, deal seriously with conviction, not take it lightly, And my prayer, as it was last night, as it was this morning, morning, so it is right now, that specific sin would be addressed, confessed, and repented of. That this body would not leave here and be vague and dishonest and dismissing of your word, myself included. Lord, help us to take this this supper carefully. In Jesus' name, amen. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. and um, This is a supper of specific remembrance, not general, not vague. And in 1 Corinthians 11, you can turn there if you'd like. Um, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 through 30 say this. Read this in light of the message that God's brought us this morning. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What what does that mean? I'm not telling you. If you got any sin, don't you do it. If you're still a sinner, don't you do it. It's not what this is is saying. This is saying to take it in an unworthy manner would mean that you're taking it in a manner of saying, I got something other than Christ that's going to get me there. If you're coming with your sin and you're being on, don't be blind to your sin. That would be unworthy. Be sober in regards to your sin. Think about your sin and say, God, I desperately need Jesus. And I believe that if I confess, you are faithful to heal us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a worthy manner to take this supper, but to disregard your sin, to ignore where you walked in iniquity this week, that's in an unworthy manner. Let a person, verse 28, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And there's a warning for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. You drink judgment on yourself because you're still operating in guilt. You're not submitting to Christ who cleanses your guilt. That is why some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we judge by the Lord, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's expectation in this supper is that you take it in a discerning manner. I encourage you that as we pass the bread and the juice to do as the Word says and examine yourselves. Paul actually goes as far later on to say, examine yourselves to see if you're even in the faith. I don't want you to doubt your faith, but I do want you to be sure. 
the second Peter verse is about making your calling and election, sure. This supper is for those who are completely dependent on Christ for their righteousness. The supper is for the repentant. This is to be an honest time. I urge you to confess your sins, to not deal lightly with conviction and examine yourselves as is fitting to what God has revealed to you this morning. As we aim to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, take and eat. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray for wholeheartedness. I pray that um, as we sing, we would not have words that are far from our hearts, lips that aren't in touch with what we actually think. That, that would be unworthy. Uh, Lord, as we sing, as we give, um, let us do it in response to, to what you have done and in anticipation of what you are going to do uh, with a sober mind in regards to the greatness of our God. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll grab a seat for just one minute. In closing, I just want to share Psalm 51, verse 3. This is David being very honest about his sin. And he says, he says this, because I don't want you to leave here thinking, I just really need to put my hope in repentance. That's not the point. You have to keep your eyes on Christ. What we just said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Psalm 51, verse 3 says, For I know my, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. We have to be sober-minded in regards to this. I was thinking about the two reasons that we would stop repenting and, or that we would not repent. And the first is that we like our sin. And that may be the confession. God, I like my sin. Change my heart. Make me think rightly in regards to who you are. The second reason that we would stop repenting is that we don't see our sin. And that's why I share Psalm 51. My sin is ever before me. I hope you see your sin so that we can respond soberly. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed. Lord, without Christ, a message on repentance is, is completely hopeless. And so uh, my prayer is that we would go and walk in a manner worthy of the call placed on our lives, humbly submitting to our Lord, heeding the word soberly, and aiming to put your glory on display in all, all things that we are a part of in our words, in our actions, in our responses, at work, at school, at home, at lunch today, whatever it is, help us to put your glory on display by bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. Where there's confusion, I pray for wisdom. As your word says, anywhere we lack wisdom, let us ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. You are great. You are greatly to be praised, and your greatness is unsearchable. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.